On today's Emerging Tech Horizons podcast, part two of our conversation with Mark Neese and Rebecca Wastenberg on the Directed Energy Supply Chain Study. So Rebecca, you talked about uh, four areas. I think we covered the first two. What were the, what were the two other focus areas of the study? So chapter three, we focused on supply chain security and vulnerabilities. Here, we looked specifically at things like cybersecurity threats, the financial stability of the companies within the supply chain, and then single and sole source and limited supplier issues. Um, And I'll kind of go in reverse order talking about those. So in the report, we spend a lot of time in chapter three talking about those limited supplier issues. This was a constant theme that came up. And again, it shouldn't come as any surprise that because there is such a small demand for so many of these, you really only have a couple of companies, sometimes only one company that can actually make a particular component. And so we outlined in the report some of the key places where you run into those issues. Um, But needless to say, this was one of the biggest vulnerabilities that we saw throughout the supply chains um, because you don't you have a lot of points where there could be a single point of failure. Um, when I mentioned that we looked at kind of the financial health of these companies, here we partnered with another NDIA member company, Rapid Ratings, um, to help with really evaluating and analyzing the financial health of a sampling of companies that are within the directed energy manufacturing base. Um, and I Just some say, of these are small companies, right? Exactly, that are dependent exactly. on both defense business, commercial business. Mm-hmm. And right? in many cases, the defense is actually just a very tiny piece of what they do. They're primarily commercial companies and just do a little bit of defense. Um, and our loyal listeners are, are very familiar because Rapid Ratings was one of our guests recently on, exactly. on the podcast. Exactly. And they were fantastic to work with. And I'll say, overall, we actually saw that the results of their analysis is that the directed energy companies actually fared pretty well when it comes to financial health. Um, However, there is still a small percentage of them that kind of fall in the, the high risk category. And so what we recommend, and I'll get more into the recommendations in the report in a moment, but we do recommend that more effort be put into this, especially at looking at those companies that were deemed high risk. Um, Because when you have such limited suppliers, one company failing can really have significant implications for the supply chain. So this was a specific area that we really encourage that um, the Department of Defense spend some time and really, really drill down more into this issue. Um, So that was chapter three. And on that, you know, the set of issues that we've talked about, things like uh, financial health of sub-tier suppliers, things like the future testing workforce, things like test infrastructure, those aren't the things that come to mind immediately when I think about industrial base and supply chain. But I guess what you're saying is that um, that market signal that you talked about earlier can help those those contractors that we usually think about, the big guys who are going to supply the systems who we know line up their sub-tier suppliers, but it also helps them think about all of these other things. Where are the rare earth materials going to come from? Where is the future workforce going to come from? Do we have the testing infrastructure lined up? What's the financial health of this thing? Um, 
those ideas, I mean, uh, it, it, are they are they sort of new ideas in analyzing supply chain? I don't know, Mark, have you, have you seen us think about those kinds of issues in the in the past? Well, certainly the, uh, the health of the industrial base for directed energy is something that we put focus on within the, uh, the society and looking at those activities. And so it very complements uh, what uh, Rebecca put in the, uh, the efforts and the recommendations that come out of the study. Um, in particular, there are investments that are being made now with our industrial base assessment studies into some of those tier two and tier three companies uh, that are uh, limited uh, capabilities, uh, perhaps sole source suppliers, and making investments there to ensure that we can keep the right technology moving forward at a reasonable pace. Um, and reasonable pace is dictated right now by the signals. Right, right. Those hidden links in the supply chain sort of makes me understand why we use the term supply chain. Uh, exactly. Okay, so uh, the fourth area of focus was uh, international partnerships, right? Exactly. Yeah, so it was international partnerships and allied nearshoring. And really here, we wanted to try and evaluate kind of the existing partnerships that are out there between the U.S. and other and allies on directed energy and look for opportunities where we might be able to leverage our closest allies to help with some of the issues that we identified earlier. Sometimes um, onshoring is the best option, sometimes nearshoring with a close ally that has a particular emphasis or expertise in an issue. Um, so really that was kind of the lens that we looked at the at chapter four. Um, and overall, we found that existing international partnerships are fairly limited, which isn't surprising given the sensitive technology, um, but there are some significant opportunities that we could be leveraging. And we've started to leverage, but more work needs to be done. Um, kind of overall, we saw testing infrastructure as a place that we could look more to our partners and allies, and then diversifying kind of the critical raw materials that we talked about earlier. Um, However, another and who who are some of these partners and allies we're talking yeah. about? People like um, countries like the United Kingdom, Australia, Israel, and the like. Um, I will say one other big theme that came out of the working groups was kind of the barriers that exist right now to this international collaboration. We talk a lot about this in the report of things that are kind of standing in the way why we aren't leveraging these right now. And it's things like you would expect. It's export controls, it's overclassification on our part, those kind of things that, that come up not just in directed energy, but kind of across the board when you're working with international partners. And so those countries that you mentioned, and maybe others, um, I'm assuming you're saying they have some capability at the system level, um, maybe not as much as ours, but have some capability at the system level, certainly have some capability at all of those sub-tier levels that you've talked about before. Plus, you can imagine there's lots of room in Australia to test your high energy lasers, uh, maybe less in, in, in you know, the UK or something like that, but there's a, a different set of capabilities they can bring even on a, those, those kinds of like test range issues. Do I have that right? Exactly, exactly. And that's a nice segue into some of the recommendations that we make. Um, I'll just touch on the first one you brought up there is kind of the testing infrastructure pieces. Obviously, we face a lot of regulations here in the United States. It's very challenging. Even if you have like a few hours, that might equal like a couple minutes of real test window. Um, 
So there's some real challenges there. And so one of the, two of the recommendations that we make in the report is one, the U.S. should work more with Australia to, to utilize their testing infrastructure. Obviously, there's costs related to that. Moving systems to Australia is no small feat. But to be able to have longer um, testing windows, and you've got the Australian outback where there's not a lot of commercial flights going over, so it's like easier to do testing out there. Just out of curiosity, Mark, I'm at a laser test event. It's probably a whole lot of setup. Is it exciting, or is it kind of like watching a kid with a magnifying glass burning ants or something like that? Um, it is um, long hours of preparation and, um, and, and waiting for the right moments and seconds of exhilaration uh, when, uh, when we have when we get to the actual engagement piece of it. And, and when you see the system work the way it's intended to work and, and all, the, all the piece parts come together, there's a real feeling of success that comes there, but it's many, many, many hours of preparation in order to get those few seconds of, uh, of exhilaration. Getting it right, right. And following up on that, we also recommend that the U.S. might look to Canada in this regard as well. Um, there's not a lot of existing collaboration there on this, but there's been some thought of, hey, can we be using sort of the northern Canadian wilderness where, again, there's very few commercial flight paths, that sort of thing, to conduct more testing. Um, so that's another area that we identify in the report. And in general, these partner nations are open to this idea of using their facilities, their, their ranges, their space for this kind of testing. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say it. Absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, um, you know, there is a collaborative effort going on right now between um, NATO partners, the UK, uh, the US, and Australia uh, to demonstrate uh, test capabilities. We've done a test uh, down at the uh, uh, TISTEF facility down in Florida, a uh, joint NATO experiment, and they recently completed a joint experiment up uh, in Canada uh, to look at some of these things. Um, and, uh, and I'll also bring up that um, just recently in the news, the UK successfully demonstrated their dragon fire system against an airborne dynamic target, uh, counter UAS capability. So uh, those capabilities are out there uh, to be utilized. And what we need to do is, is increase the collaboration opportunities between our close partners and allies. Yeah, and again, it looks like another example of you know tying into one of the themes of the National Defense Industrial Strategy, promoting those kinds of uh, international cooperation opportunities and, and maybe directed energy systems as sort of a pathfinder for how to do this, uh, how to do this at, a, at, a, at a scale and speed. Exactly. Yeah. So kind of continuing through our recommendations in the report, obviously there's a lot in there, but just to touch on a few others, um, including on the, the international partnerships piece, we also recommend, um, and this was something that we talked a bit about in our hypersonic supply chain report as well, but really leveraging Australia and Canada to help diversify that, the critical raw materials supply. You do have some deposits in both of those countries. Um, there is some mining that takes place. So looking where can the U.S. lessen reliance on China for some of these critical raw materials and look to our partners and allies. 
um, to help diversify those supply chains. So another opportunity where we could be working more with our international partners. Um, looking at kind of the other parts of the report, I think overall probably the most important recommendation, and I said it earlier, but I'll say it again, is really the government providing that clear, consistent demand signal. I can't stress that enough. And it can't just be statements. Obviously, you need to start there. But you need dollars flowing. You need actual programs of record. As far as I know, there has yet to be a single directed energy program of record. Mark can correct me if I'm wrong. You are correct. Um, and so actually establishing those, that will send that crystal clear demand signal to industry that the department is serious and they need to start investing. Um, so that's real budget. Exactly. Um, and then um, that phrase program of record implies real money for the final development and even real money for the procurement of the systems. Is that right? That is correct. And, and I will say that, you know, from my perspective, um, our directed energy industrial base is ready to support. They're, they're waiting for that clear demand signal to emphasize what Rebecca said. Is, uh, they're, they're, they're ready and, and leaning forward, uh, but we need to see that demand signal come out of the budgetary process uh, in order to really incentivize the big primes to make those investments that are necessary to get us to the manufacturability of these DE systems uh, so that we're not building one-off systems, but, uh, but building hundreds. I couldn't agree more, and that was definitely a theme as we were talking to the different companies and conducting the working groups is people were excited. People want to invest in directed energy. It's an exciting new emerging technology, um, but they need the business case for it. It's quite simple, um, so I, I completely agree. And I guess one of the points you're making is it's not so much an emerging technology anymore. It's emerged. It's ready to go. We can produce these things. We're ready to produce these things. We can make the systems. What we need to do now is make the systems at scale. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I'll say part and parcel to that demand signal, too, is also providing that clear strategic vision, like Mark was talking about earlier, of how these fit in with the rest kind of operationally. Um, and I think that really goes back to that demand signal as well. So I think there's kind of those two pieces that industry is looking to DOD leadership to provide. Um, that is so that's where you're, you're tying into this need to develop concepts of operations and real formal requirements. Exactly. And so I guess the, the recommendation to create this market signal is in some ways a recommendation to go after the requirement side of the question. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, and that's also a recommendation that we make in the report. We do specifically say, hey, we need to bring the right key players together to define those requirements because that's going to really help industry to know exactly what they're doing going forward. That's great. Yep. Um, other key recommendations that we make throughout the report, so kind of going back to those those real basic kind of levels of the supply chain with the raw materials, gallium is not currently part of the national defense stockpile and do, we do recommend that it be added. Um, again, that's only going to provide sort of the insurance against a, a real um, crisis, but that's kind of a first step um, that we do recommend going and be added to the national defense stockpile. What does that do for me if I'm part of the national defense stockpile? Does that mean that the government buys the... It sets up strategic reserves of, exactly. of the uh, raw material uh, such that 
as the demand signal increases, we wouldn't be affected by external factors uh, like China suddenly deciding that they're not going to export gallium uh, to the United States. Exactly. Yeah, sort of providing that insurance policy. Um, we also recommend that steps should be taken to develop a domestic gallium nitride production capability. This is no small effort. This is going to take government, industry, academia, and government at all different levels, federal, state, local. Um, but we really think that that's a, a key recommendation here to help secure directed energy supply chains. Um, and then we also make the recommendation that DOD should look to invest in some synthetic alternatives when it comes to directed energy weapon materials. Um, this was a theme that came up from several different interviewees that there might be specific cases, and we talk about them in the report, where there might be a synthetic alternative that could be used to, and by doing that, you could lessen reliance on China. Um, so for some of those rare earth materials, there might be other chemicals, other molecules we could develop that provide all the same function exactly. that we need for it in these systems. Yep, or germanium or something like that. Basic material research. We're all for basic material research. <laughs> Great. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, we also make a recommendation in Chapter 2 about DOD focusing on um, clearly defining the requirements, but also on standardizing. Um, and there's been a recent push for um, MOSA. There was a MOSA's reference arch architecture put out by the Department of Defense. MOSA's Modular Open Systems Architectures. Exactly, right. exactly. It's sort of a um, plug and play approach to these complicated systems, right? Exactly. And it kind of gets you away from all of the specialization that takes place that makes it expensive and complicated systems and difficult to, to replace parts in the future, that sort of thing. So there's been some recent efforts um, related to this, which is very encouraging to see, but now they need to be implemented. Um, there's, there's a lot being done, um, which is positive, but we're not there yet. Um, on the workforce side, talked a lot about earlier the fact that we need more people and there's some really good efforts out there, but we need a renewed emphasis to really get us to the levels we need to be. And so we make the recommendation um, to establish a directed energy workforce university consortium with the very specific goal of creating a strong workforce to meet future directed energy weapons. Um, obviously, University Consortia have a plethora of different roles out there, but we think highly focused on the workforce is where this consortium should be. Um, when you think about a directed energy workforce, are we talking about PhDs in laboratories? What kind of what kind of workforce are we talking about here? It's all different levels, and I'll talk a little bit, and then maybe Mark wants to talk a little bit more. Um, yes, there are some PhDs for sure. But it goes all through the different levels, depending on if we're talking about kind of the systems or the subcomponents. You have all different levels of requirement, two-year degrees, four-year degrees, no degrees, trade schools. There's a lot of different need across the board. Yeah, we'll start, you know, at the PhD level. And obviously, we need the, the physics and the engineers, the scientists who can develop these concepts. But then you have to have the engineers in the laboratories government laboratories, industry laboratories, who can bring that thought process into actual implementation, into an actual design and actual hardware. 
You need the technicians who can build the systems who can do it, uh, the technicians uh, who can operate those. Uh, what we don't need are PhDs in the field trying to operate directed energy systems. Uh, and so some of the experimentation campaigns I won't, I'm uh, not going to take offense at that. That are, that are going on right now are, you know, are geared toward the journeyman uh, level uh, from a, a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, guardian out there operating these type of systems. What is the, uh, the education level that's required for them to operate? And can we drive that down and fit that within the, uh, the standard architecture and the standard training practices that we have in place? within the DOD right now. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because if you deploy these systems, you're gonna to need to train soldiers and Marines to be experts in using the systems. Um, so it becomes an MOS or something, right? Laser guy, right? We're that kind of thing. It's not a specific MOS, <laughs> uh, but rather that it's, uh, it, it grows from you know, something that's there. We have optical systems that are out there uh, that are in use. In the, uh, in the forces today. Can we enhance the training that goes with uh, those type of capabilities in order for uh, the operators to have uh, both the, uh, the operational skills but also the maintenance skills that are necessary to uh, sustain these in the field? Great, so I'll just outline maybe one more recommendation um, before we move on. And that's kind of going back to what we were talking about with the international partnerships piece is one of the interesting themes that came out of the working groups was sort of a lack of clarity to our international partners and allies of who, who in the US government is kind of in charge of directed energy because you have so many different offices involved in this. And so we make a recommendation in the report that the Joint Directed Energy Transition Office at the Department of Defense be designated as the Office of Primary Responsibility for these international collaborations to provide that clear clarity to our partners and allies of, hey, here's your entry point. Because a lot of them, like Mark said, are very eager to work with us, but it can be a very opaque system trying to approach the U.S. government. So that office, Joint Directed Energy Transition Office, tell us a little bit about that office, what its role is today. Yeah, so they, they cover a lot of different pieces. Um, Mark, you have some personal experience there, if you'd like to talk more about it. Uh, I, I led the organization for uh, nine years uh, when it was the uh, uh, Joint um, High Energy Laser Technology Office. Uh, in 2019, we, uh, we changed the terminology for uh, included directed energy and uh, created the transition piece to it because we really looked at the technology base is kind of maturing, the tech base is maturing, the transition piece had not yet matured. And so those are the type of things they're looking at. Um, and yes, um, I, I could wholeheartedly agree that you know, Jay Detto, uh, has a role within OUSDRE uh, in terms of uh, pushing the technology forward and assisting in the transition of those uh, capabilities into the warfighting. Right, because uh, you know on the the office sits underneath Undersecretary Shu, um, but it's a transition office now, like you're saying. And I guess the point you're making is. If you're serious about transition, then you need to be serious about the supply chains, and that brings their role into looking at some of these recommendations and potentially implementing some of the recommendations. 
one of the things about your recommendations and and the findings is is saying that the technology is ready to go more than maybe it was in the 80s or 90s and uh, you, you're making the point that the industrial base is waiting for a market signal but they're primed and ready to go I'm curious is there another imperative here and I'm going to ask is our competitor nations what's our relative capability in directed energy weapons um, as compared to um, China, Russia? I will say that um, the margin between our technology and the emerging technologies coming out of uh, non-allied nations, uh, that gap is closing. Um, we educate a tremendous amount of um, foreign nationals in our U.S. educational system. Um, so our educational system is strong. We know that because they come here to study. Um, <clears throat> then they go back home and implement those lessons learned into uh, their capabilities and their development. So the gap is shrinking. Uh, we still hold a margin, uh, but I don't want to sit on that margin. Uh, and so we need to keep pushing forward faster in order to get uh, the information that's necessary for us to get out there and, and really uh, push these systems forward. So um, all the findings and recommendations are in, this, in the report now. And so Mark, curious with your, with your experience in this community, uh, what's your perspective on how you think the report is going to, could potentially help the community? And you know what? What do you think the next steps should be for that directed energy weapons community as as uh, on, on the launch of this report? Well, I'm very pleased with the outcome of the report. Uh, it was great collaborating with uh, Rebecca and the, uh, the ETI team uh, in putting this forward. Um, I will say that um, I think some of the next steps that we need is we need some long-term experimentation campaigns with the DE systems that are in operation today, uh, we need to collect the logistics supportability data that's necessary. We're very good at building a one-off system and taking it to a test range and demonstrating capability, and then we go, woohoo! <laughs> and uh, and then, we, then we chase the next uh, shiny bright object. And I think, uh, you know, we're at a, a flexure point where we could garner information, supportability information, to help uh, strengthen our knowledge of the industrial base to help create the spares uh, that are necessary to support these systems long term as we increase our manufacturability. Yeah, I mean, uh, we actually did an, uh, a podcast episode out at Letterkenny um, because someone's got to maintain these systems, right, and, and keep them running for maybe years uh, at a time, right? Those are all issues that we need to take seriously. Absolutely, and the Army Depot at Letterkenny has stepped forward and said, we want to be that, uh, that depot level supply chain uh, person for the Department for Directed Energy. Uh, and they're making investments uh, to back up those, uh, those interests on mm -hmm. their part. Uh, and so I'm very pleased with that. I guess, you know, I'll, I'll finish up by saying I believe the U.S. industrial base is ready to meet the challenge of an increased demand signal. Right now, it's incumbent upon um, uh, 
the department and uh, our uh, budgetary process to get us over that hump and, and really start driving uh, this capability forward. So, uh, Rebecca, the, the supply chain report is being released uh, today when we're recording. Um, uh, what's the next steps for ETI and NDIA on uh, both this report and the uh, future of the supply chain study series that you've been, you've been leading? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll speak kind of first to the actual directed energy study and then kind of what, what we're looking to do in the future um, with the study as a whole and other technologies. Um, we're really excited that the report's finally done. But we want this to, to really be kind of the beginning of a conversation. We expect that we don't want this document to just kind of be out there. We want people to read it, to engage with it. We want people's feedback. What do we get right? What do we get wrong? What, um, we want to see NDI members step up and say, hey, you identified this issue. Let's work on that. Um, so really kind of using this as a jumping off point to actually implement it. Um, and to implement the recommendations are in there because at the end of the day, we want those strong supply chains to support directed energy weapons. Um, so that's kind of the, the first step with this report. We have received tremendous feedback on the hypersonics report that we released last year. So we are looking to continue the, the emerging technology supply chain study. Um, we're thinking that the next technology we'll tackle is quantum computing. Obviously, that's important. It is. Mm. It is. And it's going to be a little bit different. Um, we expect it's not going to be kind of the exact same that we did with hypersonics and directed energy, mainly because for directed energy and hypersonics, these are really defense specific technologies. Um, quantum computing, it obviously has defense applications, but it's largely commercial. And so I think what I expect, and obviously the study will tell, is looking at questions like, where is the Department of Defense gonna run into issues with quantum computing supply chains that commercial industry might not necessarily have an issue. So expect um, to hear more about that in the coming months. I would encourage our listeners, if you're working in quantum computing and you want to get involved in this, please reach out to us via our website, emergingtechnologiesinstitute.org, or feel free to reach out via NDIA Connect as well. We'd love to work with you. Um, we'd love to get your feedback as we're, we're really formulating this um, portion of the study. So please, please reach out to us. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the other thing to, to remember is that the, it's all tiers of the supply chain in all of these uh, studies that are important, right? So, you know, we certainly want to work with the big systems integrators, but uh, a lot of the interesting issues and information comes from those smaller companies yes. um, who are you know, maybe not positioned to be purely in the directed energy space or in the hypersonic space or the quantum computing space, but supply to lots of different, including non-emerging areas. And th those voices, I think, are things that you try to bring into these supply chain studies as well. And you know, we've talked a lot about academic research and workforce issues, right? The university element is a, is a big part of these studies. And so, you know, all of those different types of uh, NDIA members are, are, are welcome, I'm going to say for you, to, to reach out to her and, uh, and, and see if they uh, um, can contribute and, uh, and help shape the future work in this area. Um, so, um, well, let's, let's start to close up here. Uh, I want to 
point out that you can find the new directed energy supply chain study on the ETI website. And then this afternoon, uh, Rebecca is going to be leading the rollout of, of the uh, with of the uh, of the report with Mark's uh, assistance. Um, that will be recorded and also posted on our YouTube channel uh, as as well. Um, the, uh, the discussion of directed energy weapons and their importance and the imperative to establishing a supply chain uh, was really great. And I want to thank our guests, uh, Rebecca and Mark, for joining us today. Appreciate your time and all of the work that went into this report and, and, the, and the release activities. Um, with that, I want to thank everyone for joining us again for another episode of Emerging Tech Horizons and take this moment to uh, to um, let you know about some upcoming events uh, at the Emerging Technologies Institute. We have our monthly Tech 101 series, uh, and we'll have one in a couple of weeks on digital supply chains, and uh, look on our website to see that whole series of our Technology 101 educational series, which are intended for um, uh, introduction to complex topics to the layperson and to provide an understanding of the importance of those technologies to the Department of Defense. I uh, want to put in a commercial for our second annual NDIA Emerging Technologies Conference. It's going to be held August 7th through 9th, 2024 at the Washington DC Convention Center. Uh, last year's event last August was a great success. Uh, we had speakers like uh, Indo-PACOM Commander uh, Admiral Aquilino. We had the Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Catherine Hicks. Uh, we also had Undersecretary uh, LaPlante and Undersecretary Hsu and, and a host of others uh, completely sold out. Registration, sponsorships, exhibits, so don't be late. Uh, look for announcements regarding our keynote speakers for this upcoming event, as well as when registration will be opening and opportunities for uh, exhibitors, sponsors, and for even for NDI members to present their work uh, at the conference. Um, thanks again for joining us in this week's episode of Emerging Tech Horizons. I want to give special thanks to Melanie Yu and Daniel Park uh, for producing this and all of our podcasts, and uh, hope to see you next time at Emerging Tech Horizons.